I'm Catherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. We're talking about difficult subjects related to the church, often ones no one wants to talk about. As we approach a presidential election, I am thrilled to host Rick Berry from the Center of Christian Civics. One of the biggest things we can do is demonstrate at the same time that we think our neighbors are worth serving, our neighbors are worth loving. Politics and church is often a subject we prefer to avoid. When we do engage it in faith-based communities, it can easily become polarizing. I've seen church members and church staff become ostracized from their communities because of their political beliefs. It's common for someone who identifies as Christian to vote on the right or vote on the left, and to seriously doubt the moral standard of someone who votes differently. Considering this is a topic that can cause me a lot of personal anxiety, I was grateful to bring on an expert who's devoted his career to teaching churches how to navigate these conversations. The Uncertain Podcast supports Tears of Eden, a community and resource for those in the aftermath of spiritual abuse. If you're enjoying this podcast, please take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review on your favorite podcasting listening apparatus. Here's my interview with Rick Barry. So if you don't mind introducing yourself and why you decided to do what you do. Sure thing. My name is Rick Barry. I'm the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics. We're a small, relatively young ministry based in Washington, D.C. that tries to equip church members and church leaders for civic responsibility and political depolarization within the context of discipleship and spiritual formation. We believe that living in a representative democracy is actually a pretty big responsibility that God gave us on purpose by placing us in this time and place. And so we want to see our brothers and sisters actually uh, take that responsibility and discharge it in ways that uh, give people who don't share our faith yet an understanding of what Jesus's character is like by looking at the way we behave in the public square, by the way we think, speak, and act when we're dealing with uh, these big questions and big responsibilities of what does it mean to manage a large, powerful, representative democracy that we're all living on here in the U.S.? We got started because my co-founder and I both had backgrounds working in ministry and both had backgrounds working in politics on opposite sides of the aisle and ended up becoming pretty good friends with a friendship that was based mostly on dreaming about what we would want to see Uh, what potential we thought there was for the church to bring honor and glory to Jesus that we weren't bringing into it yet in the way that we engaged politics, engaged government, engaged civic life. So yeah, we started because a professional Republican and a professional Democrat wanted to help prepare the church for its wedding day. What was your your story leading up to making the decision to start working in this field? I had actually become a Christian in art school in college and 
had completely disengaged from politics until I got offered the week after I graduated with a creative writing degree. I was offered a job working on a campaign for the summer and you can make whatever jokes you want to make about fiction writing and working on political campaigns. And I just thought it would be a fun, goofy thing to do for the summer when I was getting the third revival of my breakout play. I could confess to the New Yorker that, oh yeah, right after college, I worked on a political campaign. Can you believe I ever did anything so worthless? But I ended up seeing that a lot of like theology and discipleship of art and culture that I had been raised in for the last four years being a Christian in art school. A lot of what I had been taught about what it means to take the responsibility of uh, being an image bearer of God seriously in a creative profession actually applied pretty easily and cleanly to what it meant to live out our calling as image bearers of God when we are taking on the responsibility of participating in civic life. I think about, I think it was Eisenhower had said that if this form of government is going to work, then government has to be the part-time profession of every citizen. And when I was working on campaigns, I had seen that um, we were kind of creating a culture of trying to get citizens to give that responsibility away to the kind of middle managers they were hiring during elections. We were trying to get Pharaoh to just give Joseph the power of Pharaoh instead of getting Pharaoh to take the responsibilities of Pharaoh more seriously. So that had really been sticking in the back of my mind since probably my second or third campaign. But it was a good like seven or eight years. I don't think Danny and I started becoming friends till 2014 and my first campaign was 2006. But I had been working with his... um, then fiance, now wife at a network of churches in DC, where you and I met actually also. Mm -hmm. And my wife and I gave her a ride to the fall retreat. The fall retreat. (laughs) And she, we got to talking about my thoughts about faith and politics. And she said, my, my fiance is a Republican, but you definitely need to become friends with him. So she kind of set us up on a friendship date and within four months, we were launching a blog together and then um, planning to start a nonprofit. Doing what you do. Did answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. I love it. A quick side question about campaigns. So I worked on campaigns. Did I tell you that? I you don't did know not. I, yes. I, it's addictive. Did you find it addictive? Yes. Especially someone in his early to mid twenties who had the energy to work 12 to 18 hour days, seven days a week. Going out in the middle Um, of the night, silencing. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And it's a uh, blast. Just the, as someone who also struggles with ADHD, the constant urgency of everything coming in and the clarity of what our goals were at any given moment just made it very easy. It relieved me of that need to do all the like meta textual work of prioritizing. It was just, there was always something was simultaneously urgent and important at all times. All the time, all the yeah. time. Yeah, exactly. Um, it was, 
a really great environment for the way my brain was wired. Mm. I also get why most of the people around me were topping out in their early 30s, though. Yeah, it's, this is around this is around the time when like it's like heating up and you're like pulling all nighters. This is the election time. This is it. I remember it, man. I can taste it. Yeah. So why, when it comes to church or religious organizations, why is the topic of politics so polarizing, as you stated it, cause so much conflict? Well, there are a few reasons, and some of them are very good, and some of them are less good. The One of the good reasons, though, is just that we care. If you don't feel strongly about it, if you're not likely to get heated, then you may not actually care about the thing you're engaging with. And when it comes to government, politics, civics, public life, we are supposed to care about the well-being of our neighbors. We are supposed to care about the peace, the healing, the flourishing of the city we're called into. If you don't care, you're not going to get heated about it. So it's not always bad for people to feel like they have skin in the game. But some of the not so good reasons, one is we often forget very simple truths about the Christian faith when we start talking about government, civics, public policy, forget that simple truth that we start viewing other people as obstacles rather than assets. And another not so good reason is we learn how to talk about these things by looking to people who don't care about some of the fundamental things Christians are supposed to care about. We learn how to talk about politics and government by mimicking or learning about these topics from people who its primary concern is winning, pr- gaining power, preserving power, or getting a specific policy passed, rather than people whose primary concern is witness, redemption, restoration, healing, reconciliation, and the reputation of Christ. We don't have a robust tradition of political theology that takes the full extent of American democracy under consideration. Uh, American democracy has only existed for about 200 years, and for most of that time it was the power, authority, identity, legitimacy of the state was nowhere near as democratized as it is now. So most of our political theology is rooted in concepts of government that are inherently monarchistic or constitutional monarchies, where it's kind of a agreement or the state is still something outside of the individual and the head of state or the ruling class kind of gives the majority of people a say in the government as a like concession to them not revolting. Whereas the American power dynamic is conceptually very different from that. So it makes, and it has only existed for a very short time relative to the history of the church, let alone the history of redemption. So it makes sense that we don't have an incredibly well-developed tradition of political theology rooted in this kind of democratic construct or such a radically democratic construct. So it makes sense that most of the language and most of the ideas we learn about what it means to relate to government as an individual comes from 
sources outside of the church, but we do need to do a better job of equipping one another to test those sources, um, cling to what's good about them, and challenge or let go of where they fall short of what our faith tells us. Yeah, I never thought about the fact that this type of government is very new to the history of the world. Even like the earlier, like proudest democracies that were operating in the tradition of like the height of the Roman Republic when it was a republic would still read unambiguously to Americans today as a as an aristocracy. Mm. Um, like, and the height of the Roman Republic was between the Old Testament and the New Testament. No biblical author existed in anything we would recognize as a democracy today. The analogy I like to use is kind of the beginning of the first Star Wars movie where Darth where they're talking about the Senate and Darth Vader talks about it as like the last window dressings of the old Republic. It was there for PR purposes, but essentially it was the galactic government had ceased to be a Republic decades ago. And Caesar Augustus is the one who consolidated that power and the biblical authors. Yeah. We're living on, even the biblical authors who lived in Rome were living under the Roman monarchy, the Roman Empire, not the Roman Republic. Mm, yeah, well, it would make sense that so new, very little written about what and how to navigate these conversations or what this should look like or what it's even for, it would make sense that we would make a lot of mistakes and then also that it would be something that would cause a lot of consternation in relationships between people especially in the church when you do, like you said, care so much about. And that should be exciting to us. And I really do think that should be affirming to us. It's something we all have to take responsibility for instead of just entrusting to one dude we're never going to have to worry about. It's much more of a like intellectual challenge. Like it requires a little bit more of us in terms of time and energy and character but we're not dealing necessarily with starvation, physical violence, any kind of prison or deprivation for our faith, the way Christians in the countries where the majority of Christians are located have to deal with. Like we're not needing to deal with what our brothers in the, and sisters in the majority Christian world in Africa, in China are dealing with. Like, we get off easy physically, but there's a little bit more of a mental and emotional and social demand on us than most other Christians have had to deal with, which is exciting in some ways and an honor. God wouldn't give us that if he didn't think we were capable of witnessing well with that responsibility. That's a good point. Digging a little deeper into that, why might someone who identifies as Christian vote Democrat? And my, why might someone who identifies as Christian vote Republican? Are there any specific policies on either side that might draw someone who identifies as Christian towards one of those political parties? One of the things that's hard for us, I think, often to get our heads around because most of the way we learn to think about politics and government come from uh, sources that are thinking politically first and morally second 
is we tend to think that there's always, without exception, a one-to-one relationship between principle and policy or between moral principle and political strategy. And we like to think that because I'm a Christian, I support this. But that actually skips, that statement skips over a lot of other steps that we leave in subtext. The reality is that it's often a lot more complicated than that. Our political leanings, whether that's, you know, what policies we support or make sense to us or what party we tend to feel more hostile toward or warmer toward or be more comfortable around. Uh, They're actually shaped by a whole lot of extra biblical factors that determine how we relate our faith to our politics. And I say extra biblical, not anti-biblical, not unbiblical, but extra biblical, like interpretive methods. The like if our if our political preferences are one biscuit and our faith is the other biscuit, we tend to forget the fact that there's also cream in the middle of the Oreo holding them together. And we actually talk about a lot of these in our classes. Uh, we have like 45 minutes of teaching and small group conversation and private reflection out of our like half day seminar just on this topic. And uh, a lot of them are actually perfectly okay. Like there are some reasons that Christians end up on opposite sides of the aisle that are idolatrous and some reasons that are even heretical. But there are a lot of reasons that are actually not just acceptable, but actually necessary for the church to be healthy and to function well. A couple of those include specific callings or passions God has given people. We talk a lot about people having a heart for this topic or a heart for that topic. If God has called some people to spend a lot of their time and energy feeding the homeless and other people doing a lot of their time and energy providing housing for them and other people spending a lot of their time and energy working on pediatric public health, for example, uh, we also have to accept that those topics are going to end up playing an outsized role in shaping how they vote or shaping where their political priorities are, even if those topics don't align with where our specific hearts are or our priorities are. There's also, like I've alluded to before, the Bible doesn't give clear instruction on what the proper relationship is between an individual believer's values and the shape of public policy in a representative democracy that is uh, functionally, that is avowedly agnostic, functionally secular materialist, our kind of the language of our public debate is the language of, mostly the language of secular materialism, in which believing Christians are probably the largest minority in a sea of spiritual minorities. We're not in a one-person monarchy where the shape of policy comes from one person's values. We are filling that seat on a 300 million-person Pharaoh committee with a whole bunch of people that have different ideas about what a good society looks like and is shaped like. And the Bible doesn't tell us in this situation what the best final outcome for the policy priorities are. It does give us instruction on what kind of character traits we are supposed to embody 
in every dimension of life. But giving a full answer to that would be, you know, 45 minutes to an hour out of a four hour class that uh, we are offering online in like one hour in four weekly sessions if your church wants to bring us in to teach that class. You should definitely send me the info on that so I can put it in the show notes. Okay. I'd be happy to include that. Even if two people care about the same thing, there's still a, even a difference between moral principle and political strategy. Mm. Like I grew up in an area that was heavily Catholic and also my first pregnant classmate was I think in seventh grade but my, the area I grew up in also had a fairly low abortion rate because we had you know, a daycare center in our high school. We had night classes in high school for students who needed to stay home during the day and parents would then watch the baby at night. There were a lot of, it was a very anti-abortion area, but they put most of their focus instead of putting uh, putting their focus behind prohibition and pers- persuasion, they took a more like social or cultural economical approach of what are the factors that might leave someone feeling like this is their best choice. Let's start first by relieving those. So you can even have two people who care about the same issue like abortion. And if one person thinks the best approach is a top-down legislative approach approach to cutting off access to it, they're going to end up more likely to vote Republican on that. If someone thinks the best approach is uh, to take away some of the fear factors that might leave someone feeling cornered into it, they're probably going to be more likely to be pushing for something like paid family leave or universal um, single-payer prenatal care. And that's going to leave them looking more to the left, more likely to vote Democrat because they care about the same issue. That's that's a great example. Yeah, great example. Uh, yeah, so last question. I've seen people get run out of churches based on things that they've said on Facebook or things that they've said in a sermon. Do you have any advice for people who are trying to talk about these things and address these things, knowing that it can be polarizing in their community, specifically for church leaders or spiritual leaders? I do. First, I maybe want to address, instead of the spiritual leaders, the people running them out. It is important. A, vital for us to recognize that our ministry leaders are still human beings and this responsibility is still relatively new in human history. And most of us, if not all of us, because of the nature and culture of the political climate, we're um, trying to figure out how to wield this responsibility we have of participatory democracy without being well equipped for that. So it is very important that we be patient with one another whenever possible. And it is also important for us to deliberately practice humility. We are not coming to church to be affirmed or congratulated or to celebrate hearing something we agree with. We are coming together to 
receive teaching, correcting, and training in righteousness. And sometimes that is hard to receive. It is important for us to remember that we are not consumers in the church. We are partners, members, and members of a body that are not ourselves the head. It is important if we are hands to actually take in the information we are getting from the eyes, not just say, because the eye is producing different data or different thoughts than the hand is, I don't need the eye. So for church members, for all of us, that's extraordinarily important and extraordinarily difficult to remember and live out right now. I would say anyone who's in a position of ministry leadership um, needs to remember that our job when we are in ministry leadership is, especially where people's politics are concerned, is usually, unless it's, I will just say, is usually to not change the way someone votes. It's not to shape someone's policy commitments. It is to foster a gathering of the body that has a functioning immune and repair system to foster a gathering of the body that heals and repairs the members who are connected to it. We're not necessarily trying to tell people, if you are a Christian, that means you have to support this policy approach to this problem and prioritize this problem over that one. It is helping to make sure people know how to uh, demonstrate love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all the fruit of the spirit, um, to take their thoughts captive, to test everything, even the things they agree with, to witness prophetically, even to the people they like or the people they consider their allies or the people who they think are members of their tribes, um, even the people they're inclined to support. Our job is to teach people to be missionaries, to the cultures that they are already most embedded in, not champions of a specific culture in the culture war. There is a chance because we all reflect and distort God's image in different ways. We are all kind of uh, fun house mirrors with our bulges and our condensy little bits positioned in different parts of the mirror there is a chance that as our mirrors get straightened out, they'll never become perfectly clear and perfectly reflective until we are made perfect. But through the course of repentance and discipleship, some of, our, some of the imperfections in our mirror will get straightened out. There is a chance that that means some of the things that inclined us to support the Democratic Party or inclined us to support the Republican Party or inclined us to think that we're above or better than the political process will end up changing. And we will end up, if as we become more thoroughly conformed to the image of Christ, some Republicans might become Democrats and some Democrats might become Republicans because the things that were shaping their political commitments were mostly idolatrous. But my guess is just as many people will not go from becoming Republican to Democrat, but go from becoming Republican to becoming witnesses to the Republicans around them, or to go from becoming Democrat to becoming witnesses and missionaries to the Democrats around them. Um, the 
chair of our advisory council who has worked in HHS in the Office of Faith-Based and Community Partnerships under Bush, Obama, and now Trump, and said that it is just as likely that if you're a Republican and you become Christian, you're going to be called deeper into Republican culture as a redemptive agent rather than being called out of Republican culture and vice versa for Democrats. So we also have to stop assuming that everyone's calling and everyone's mission conforms to the same image as our calling and our mission. You have to remember that it is our job to equip people for mission wherever they are being sent. And we do need Christians sent into every tribe speaking in every tongue if we are going to actually live out the calling of preaching Christ to all nations or ethnos, the phrase um, that really is best translated as people groups in the New Testament. The job of the church is to send people everywhere, even in the places that the pastor himself or herself may not be from. Thanks for sharing. Any final thoughts? This is hard. It is okay that it is hard. One of the biggest things we can do is demonstrate at the same time that we think our neighbors are worth serving, our neighbors are worth loving, that we think the responsibilities we are entrusted with by God, by virtue of him placing us in a time to place to have them, are worth pursuing, while also demonstrating that we know the ultimate fate of the world does not rest on our shoulders. We can, if we can enter the public square with every resource and power entrusted to us, while also demonstrating a dogged commitment that neither our identity nor the fate of the world depends on whether or not we get the right laws passed, that we understand that there's no law we can pass that's so good that Jesus will come back sooner and nothing we can screw up so badly that he'll say it's not worth coming back. That's going to be maybe the most countercultural thing we can do in the public square. So I would really encourage the church to take this responsibility seriously and take the ultimate comfort and promise of the fate of the world on our shoulder seriously at the same time. Be a foretaste while knowing that you're not the one who's going to have to deliver the final meal. Oh, I like it. Very cool. Well, thank you. We offer offer classes both for the general congregation as well as training classes for church staff and leadership. And we have a Bible study that's already released and a series of private devotional guides and training manuals for church leaders coming out over the course of the next few months. And you can find all of those and subscribe to our podcast at christiancivics.org. Nice. Thank you. We'll put all of that in the show notes. Thanks so much, Rick. Awesome. Thanks for joining me today. I'll see you next time.